Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Amen. Well, good morning, church. How's it going? Good. I'm just going to shift this. Sorry. Got to make sure I keep my eye on the clock so I don't waste your guys' time, right? Well, I'm excited to uh, be opening up the Word of God with all of you. I'm certainly humbled to do that. Uh, We're actually going to be continuing our series this morning in the book of Acts. And if you can remember from the last couple of weeks, we've seen a transition take place in the life and ministry of Paul. He was compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem knowing full well that persecution, prison, and possible death were awaiting him there. And yet, he, uh, fixing his eyes on the finish line, trusting God, stepped out in faith and marched his way towards Jerusalem. Despite the fact that he had gotten word from a number of fellow Christians not to go, he even received a prophecy from a prophet named Agabus that he would be bound by the Roman soldiers. But again, he didn't care because he knew that God was calling him to do something. And so I want to do just a real brief uh, recap on where we're at in the story before I jump into the text that we'll be specifically reading this morning because, again, we're going to see just a small snapshot into Paul's life, but I want us to have some context before getting into it. When Paul had finally arrived to Jerusalem, uh, he attempted to keep a, a low profile, but it did not take long for the Jewish leaders to see Paul in the temple and recognize him. And as soon as they did, they stirred up a mad mob and uh, they dragged Paul out of the temple and began to beat him ruthlessly. And uh, if they would have had their way, they would have killed him right then and there. Luckily, the Roman uh, Tribune, which if you can remember from last week, we learned is essentially a military commander, and in this case was in charge of up to a thousand Roman soldiers. But he was notified of this uproar that was taking place outside of the temple. So they immediately went to the grounds, or actually this, these uh, large flights of stairs that led right to the outside of the temple wall uh, because they were stationed at a Herodian fortress that overlooked the temple, essentially. So they made their way and and they captured Paul, trying to make sense of the chaos of what was going on. And uh, of course, Paul, taking that opportunity, was able to present his testimony and the gospel to everyone that was in an uproar, essentially. They listened to him, as a matter of fact, but uh, he was unable to really appease them Altogether, So they continued to demand that Paul be killed. And so the Romans, trying to make sense uh, of, of the chaos and, and the accusations, they thought, well, maybe we'll extract some information from him if we just flog him. <laughs> so they were going to do that, and then they found out he's a Roman citizen. We can't do that. That would violate our law. And that is where we step in today. So if you would stand with me for the reading of the word... We're going to begin reading in chapter 22 of Acts, verse 30, and we'll roll right into chapter 23, so you can simply follow along as we go. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason 
why he, Paul, was being accused by the Jews. He unbound him, he being the tribune, and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience, uh, in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. If you skip down with me to verse 11, it continues, the following night, the Lord stood by him, him being Paul, and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no, good f- to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of the many things that I love about God's Word is you can open it up to any book of the Bible, turn to any chapter and begin to read its verses, and you'll find relevant application after relevant application. And uh, it's certainly true for today's passage. We're looking at just a tiny little snapshot into the life of Paul 2,000 years ago. And yet, as we'll see, as we begin to dissect these verses a little bit more, we will find biblical principles that you and I get to take with us and apply and pray that these principles not only affect how we think, but how we act today, tomorrow, this week, and prayerfully beyond. And so I've got just five of those simple principles that we will be looking at this morning. And the first one is that God is sovereignly working out his plans in your life. We see this specifically in the life and ministry of Paul as he's giving his uh, testimonies, essentially, as he's declaring the gospel to the council in verses 1 and 6. And it's amazing because this is actually a continual fulfillment of the original prophecy that was given to him at his conversion. And so this point that God is sovereign in your life goes even beyond that statement alone. And we can say that God is even sovereign in the adversity. 
You know, when I use this word sovereign, what I simply mean by it is that God is in absolute, total, and complete control over everything, all the time, always. I don't know if that's clear enough for you, right? God is in total control. And it's amazing because as Christians, we can acknowledge this pretty easily when life's going well for us, right? Maybe you have that job promotion that you just have been praying for and and perhaps you finally got word that you received that. And in that moment, it's easy as a Christian to acknowledge his sovereignty, to give him the glory, to be thankful in that moment for the goodness of God in your life. Or maybe you, like myself, have had the um, incredible blessing of welcoming in uh, a new baby to the, to the family, right? A new son, a new daughter. And in that moment, when you see that miracle, it's only natural to see the goodness of God in that, to acknowledge his sovereignty and to give him thanks. And maybe it's not this crazy mountaintop experience for you. Maybe you're just experiencing general good health in you and your family, provision, you're able to pay your bills and still have a little bit of money left over at the end of the month. In those moments, we can acknowledge God's sovereignty. But I think it takes on a whole nother meaning when life isn't going well for us. You know, when we face those trials and those difficulties that weren't a part of the game plan. If you're anything like me, um, you're really good at setting plans for your life and uh, hoping that they go just completely perfect to the point. But then you realize they never do, right? (laughs) They always seem to have some kind of unexpected turn, sometimes for the better, oftentimes for the better, even when we don't see it, but also sometimes for the worse. And it's important that whether it's a job promotion or perhaps it's a job loss, that we can acknowledge God's sovereignty in that. Perhaps someone younger and less qualified than you came and took your position right from under you after you've given years of faithful service to that company. Can you still look to God and say, you are sovereign and you are good in my life? What about instead of that celebration of a new baby into your home, what if you're faced with the incredible trauma of a miscarriage? Maybe not even your first miscarriage. Or maybe you're faced and wrestling with infertility. Takes on a whole different meaning in that moment to be able to look to God and look at his word and say, you're still good. You're still sovereign. You're still in control. And, uh, you know, I... It's one thing even with the general health, the good health of your home, but what about when you've received that diagnosis, even like Bill was mentioning, maybe a diagnosis of cancer, maybe some other life-threatening disease. Maybe instead of the provision, it takes every penny in your bank account just to pay those bills. It's so important that we as Christians grab hold of this doctrine of the sovereignty of God and that we don't waver in it the moment life gets hard. Charles Spurgeon once said, and I'll I'll flip it there. Charles Spurgeon once said, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. So it's actually, believe it or not, this idea of God's absolute control in your life that will give you the peace and the comfort in the midst of that pain. So it's not that we acknowledge God's sovereignty despite the pain. It's in the pain when we really need that doctrine the most. 
That's what gives us the comfort. There's a, a verse, James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, that says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I think that says it all right there. Count it all joy. You know, it's amazing. If you look at the Greek word there for all, you'll never believe what it means. It means all, right? All. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So in other words, if it's those life-shaking, life-altering trials or just those everyday mundane frustrations, we are to count it as joy knowing that God is using it to bring about your sanctification and the good of others. So whether it's you were given three months to live or it's simply your three-month-old refusing to sleep, God can use that to bring about your sanctification. You might be asking, well, how? How is the pain and the struggle and the difficulty that I'm up against, how is that possibly producing anything good? And one simple question, answer to that would be that if in that moment you are clinging to the cross, you are looking to Jesus for your source of strength, man, I'll tell you, you're growing in sanctification. If you are recognizing your inability without Christ, and if you are humbling yourself and saying to you alone, Lord, be the glory, you are growing in your sanctification. And make no mistake, as you do that, other people in your life, when they see that, man, they're going to be either one of two things, maybe both. They're going to be encouraged and or convicted. And they could be, God likely is using that to bring about their own sanctification and possibly even using it as a means to their salvation. What I would like to do now is simply turn to our second principle, which is that when you are wronged, trust God to make it right. We see this straight out of verses two through five. Specifically, verse two says, and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. You see, when this took place, Paul was fully aware of the hypocrisy of that high priest Ananias and the, the unlawfulness of that action. We know this because the Mosaic law teaches in Leviticus 19 that if a man is put on trial, he's to be treated fairly. He's to be allowed to give a full defense before any kind of judgment is passed. And yet Paul was simply in his very first sentence of his defense being struck on the mouth. And yet Paul was able to recognize the high priest's position of authority and honor that position, even though the action was completely wicked and wrong. So I think we could add to this, when you're wrong, trust God to make it right, while you heap burning coals upon their head. Now, before you think I'm telling you to take revenge or take matters into your own hand, let's read Proverbs chapter 25, verse 21 through 22. It says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, Give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. So in other words, when you're wronged, 
Treat that person right. Those who hate you, love them. If they're hungry, feed them. This is completely counterculture and seems counterproductive. And I don't want you to think that I'm telling you to justify their sin, but there's a distinction to be made here. And that is that when someone wrongs you, sins against you, it's not that you're simply justifying what they did by not taking revenge, but what you're actually doing is acknowledging the goodness of God and the fact that he is a righteous judge that will take matters into his own hands in his perfect timing. You see, um, when, when we grab hold of bitterness and anger and unforgiveness because of wrong done to us, we are actually accusing God of injustice. That becomes a moment where you want to step back and say, wait a minute. If I'm becoming angry and bitter, if I'm not willing to forgive, I'm accusing God of injustice. You might say, well, how so? Well, because it's ultimately a lack of of faith in the goodness and holiness of God. Because we know that in God's perfect time, he will bring about perfect punishment to that person. It's important that we realize that this person that hurts you and sinned against you, and please know I'm not trying to undermine the pain and the sin that was really caused against you. But when we have that person sin against us, there's only two possible outcomes. One, they acknowledge their sin. They repent. They turn to Christ. And Jesus, in his mercy, washes that person clean, raises them from dead to life, to, from, raises them from the death to life, sets, brings them, carries them to the table. And in that moment, you and I are to welcome that individual as a brother or sister in the Lord. That's one possibility, and that should certainly be the one we're praying for, because we need to remember we were once the outcast. We were once depraved in our sin. We were once dead and brought to life by the mercy and grace of God. So we should pray for those that sin against us, that that would be our response. But the second possibility is that that individual that hurt you, that sinned against you, that did wrong to you, that they don't repent. They don't turn to Christ. They remain an enemy of God. And in doing so, God will have his perfect judgment and pour his wrath on that individual, and they will be faced with an eternity in hell. We should really recognize that when we're tempted to take on bitterness and anger because of wrong done to us. You see, God does not need our help in this regard. That individual that sinned against you, that hurt you, they do not need the full wrath of God plus our dirty looks. They do not need the full wrath of God plus our silent treatment. The full wrath of God plus our snarky remarks or outbursts of anger. James chapter 1 verse 20 says that the right, uh, says that the, oh, there we go. I didn't put it in the slide. James chapter 1 verse 20 says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Next slide. Third principle, you are not alone. The Lord stands with you. We see this 
right in verse 11. I got to turn to it real quick. There we go. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. See, when, when life gets hard, God does not get overwhelmed, nor does he flee from battle. But Christ stands with you. When you look at the Greek for this phrase, stood by him, it lends itself to the idea of being present with a friend. When I realized that, I immediately thought of Psalm chapter 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Also, Psalm 139, 7 through 8, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Man, what a God we serve. What a God we serve, knowing that whatever you're up against, he stands with you. I'm reminded of a story of an athlete named Derek Redmond. You may be familiar with this, but he was a British runner and was in the 1992 Olympics. And uh, it was actually in the semifinal 400-meter race. As he was running, he hears this pop in his leg. And he suddenly falls to the ground in agonizing pain. And he, you can see if you watch the video, which if you want to, you can just click it in YouTube and uh, watch it later tonight. But when you see this video, you see the pain in his eyes as he sees all those runners pass him by and cross that finish line without him. And all of these Olympic medics were coming out and they were going to put him on the stretcher. And you see him suddenly stand up and begin to wobble his way towards the finish line. And you can see every step he takes, I mean, he's just in searing pain. And suddenly out of nowhere, you see this man break through security, run onto the track, grab Derek's hand and put it over his shoulder. And he begins to support him as they march together towards the finish line. The moment that Derek sees this man come to him, he begins to break down weeping. Turns out that man was Derek's father. And it's amazing because all of the officials, the Olympic officials, were doing everything they could to get Derek's father back into the bleachers, off of the track. It wasn't allowed. It was a violation, as you can imagine. But man, Derek's dad did not care. He knew, I do not belong in the bleachers sitting by. My son needs me, so I will be by his side. And the reason I share this story is because I believe it is such a clear picture of the faithfulness of our God, of his grace. When you feel like you don't have any strength left in you, you don't know how you're going to possibly carry on, Christ stands with you. How amazing that we have a God that stands with us. When you've been betrayed by someone you trusted, Christ remains trustworthy. 
He stands with you. When you feel abandoned and unseen, Christ sees you in that moment. He stands with you. And if you're suffering in silence, maybe riddled with fear, anxiety, depression, addiction, Christ provides the peace. He provides the freedom. He stands with you. And take this point a little bit further. Um, There's an early church father, Augustine of Hippo, or depending on who you talk to, they might call him Augustine. (laughs) But he says, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. So not only does Christ stand with you, but he understands your pain. Jesus knew what it felt like to be rejected. He knew what it felt like to be falsely accused. He knew what it felt like to be put to open shame. as he stripped naked, nailed to a cross. Man, that's our savior. He knows the pain. Hebrews 4.11 tells us that we have a high priest that can sympathize with us in our weakness and yet was without sin. Man, I'll tell you, when we grasp this reality, we should be able to wake up in the morning and say, whatever my day brings, I can march forward because I do not march alone. I have a savior that stands by me who understands my pain. The fourth point I want us to look to is do not fear when under attack. You see, this is pulled straight out of verses 12 through 15, and it's because we see literally 40 bloodthirsty men taking an oath to not eat or drink anything until they see Paul six feet under. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says, what shall we What shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Man, I'll tell you. I love this verse because it's an obvious answer. If God is for you, who can be against you? Everybody else on the face of the planet. And we know for a fact that Satan and all of his demons are against you. But the implication to this verse is that if God is for you, none of those other people matter. And so I want us to recognize the fact that we have a God who is for us. But if you take those verses in Romans 8 just a little further, we also find we have a Savior that is interceding on our behalf. And then if you study Scripture even more, we find that there's a Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. And I'll tell you, this truth should cause Christians to be the most bold, courageous people group on the face of the planet. We have a God who is for us. We have a Savior who's interceding for us. We have the Holy Spirit that lives in us. We have no excuse to be timid and fearful of man. We have no excuse. And it's not simply in the area of evangelism, although it certainly includes that, but we should be bold and courageous and step out, not fearing man, but 
fearing God in the way that we conduct business, the way that we raise our family, the way we spend our free time. This should affect every single area of our life. It's important that we ask the question, why was it that Paul had 40 bloodthirsty men eager to kill him? And it's not just Paul. We see this in our own Savior's life, Jesus. Man, people wanted him dead. We see this from Genesis through Revelation, faithful men of God who were hated by men, who were hated by the world. See it throughout all of church history. And I believe one of the answers to why we see that faithful men of God are hated by this world, hated by men, is because they were unwilling to shrink back when the message of God flew in the culture, flew in the face of the culture. They were unwilling. There's a Martin Luther quote says this, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. So in other words, we could defend the mode of baptism until we are blue in the face. We can quote John Calvin on salvation all day long. But if while we're doing that, we are refusing to speak out God's word as it relates to sexuality or as it relates to roles and responsibilities within marriage and the home or as it relates to God's opinions of the unborn child, then our soldier, our, our, our loyalty as a soldier is faltering. You see, we know what the idols of our day is. We know those cultural hot topics, those things where you just know, oh, that's off limits. I can't talk about that. I'll tell you, that's not preaching the full counsel of God. Every day we have a choice to make. Are we going to fear man and be selective with Scripture, be selective with our use of Scripture? Or are we going to fear God at the risk of being reviled by men and yet determining in our heart that there will be no problem passages. I need to continue to work on this where I don't waver and fall back when I'm faced with those struggles, that temptation to just kind of tuck that verse into your prayer closet so no one can see it. Man, no, let's, let's be bold, unashamed pro- proclaimers of the gospel. Luke chapter 6, verse 26 says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Matthew 10, 32 through 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. The fifth And final principle that I want us to look at is that God desires to use you. Again, we see it in verse six. See, Paul's mission in life and even during his trial before the Jewish leaders and the Roman tribune was to make Christ known to all people everywhere. Whether Paul was a free man or imprisoned, whether he was healthy or sick, strong or weak, young or old, 
He always used the opportunity to preach the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's take advantage of those opportunities around us. Let's not wait for those divine appointments. You know what I mean? Those divine opportunities. Now, those are great and certainly pray for them. And when they come your way, take advantage of them. But you know what? It's like when you're at work and that coworker just happens to drop it right in your lap. Hey, what, what are your thoughts on God? What are your thoughts on the Bible? It's like, okay, yeah, home run. Um, that's awesome. <laughs> Definitely do that. Or in the marketplace, wherever you are in public, take those opportunities. But I think sometimes we as Christians can wait around praying for those opportunities, meanwhile missing every other ordinary opportunity that we pass by day, every day, day after day. You see, I think more often than not, God is waiting around for us to just take the normal mundane appointment, the normal mundane opportunity. And as we step out in faith and fumble along trying to be faithful, preaching the gospel, God will step in and make that moment great. And even if he doesn't, at least you're being obedient. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 13. We see the parable of the sower. And I think one thing that's important to recognize about the parable of the sower is that the sower was not stingy with his seed. We do not see him one little seed at a time, carefully placing it into the most perfect soil conditions. But rather, what we see is he just simply scattered that seed, man. He threw it everywhere, left and right, up and down. Some of that seed happened to land on good soil. Some of it landed along the wayside. Some of it among thorns and thistles, so on and so forth. But the point is he was generous with that seed. And we too are called not to be stingy with the gospel, but let's be generous with the gospel Recognizing that Jesus did not call any of us to save anybody, but he did call us to be faithful messengers. Let God bring the increase. He's the one that will do the saving. And although God wants to use you, it's important that we recognize he's not dependent on you. Now that might sound mean, but it's actually good news. He's not dependent on us, but he does want to use us. But if we choose to pass up that good work, someone will come along who is faithful and pick up that crown. Let that not be your and I's story. Let us be the faithful people who scatter that seed, proclaiming that gospel, the goodness of God, what he's done in your life. It doesn't have to be complicated. So often what Paul did is he simply explained what took place in his own life. I encountered Jesus. This is who he is. This is what he said. This is what he did. Keep it simple but be faithful. And don't assume that God can't or won't use you because of some kind of shortcoming. You know, he ended up using Paul's young nephew to stop 40 bloodthirsty men. There was once a time when he chose to use a little boy with a sack lunch to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. He chose to use a bunch of fishermen and a ragtag group of dudes to turn the world upside down. So whatever excuse you have for why you can't be used of God, just go ahead and crumple that up and throw it in the trash. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> but 
But again, it should be encouraging. God wants to use you. He can and he will use you if you're willing. So we get the privilege and honor to participate in God's glorious plan. Let's not pass that up. Amen? Amen.